pray that we would just see the absolute necessity of following Christ and of counting the cost. And Father, for those here today who heard the gospel and understand it, but they, they've just never come over to follow the Savior, may today be the day that they repent. May you grant them new life. Father, we pray today for, for mothers and for families in, in this church, in this city. Father, we thank you for the contribution that moms make and the work that they do and the devotion and the many, many hours of, of effort and, and faithfulness. Father, we pray for those moms today who are, are grieving. It's a hard day because they have had to say goodbye to a child that's gone on before them. This is a day full of heartache. May you comfort them. And we pray for those who long to be moms but have just been unable to, to have children. And this is a hard day for them as well. We pray for your comfort. Father, thank you for the, the moms who have just faithfully and kindly and lovingly raised children. I pray that you would reward them, and I pray today they would feel genuinely appreciated and loved by their families. May we learn to honor father and mother as your word directs us, and not just one day out of the year, but maybe a lifestyle for us of honoring the parents that you have given to us. And so, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Would you help us to, to see the cost of commitment from your word? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Bibles are open to Luke 12. Historian Tom Holland, not to be confused with the actor Tom Holland, different guy, uh, in his epic history of Christianity known, uh, called Dominion, writes toward the end of his book this. He's now, by the way, just a little context, he's taken 500 pages to really trace 2,000 years of church history and the revolution uh, of Christianity and in world history. He writes this, to attempt the tracing of Christianity's impact on the world is to cover the rise and fall of empires, the actions of bishops and kings, the arguments of theologians, the course of revolutions, the planting of crosses around the world. I've written much in this book about churches and monasteries and universities. But these were never where the mass of Christian people were most influentially shaped. It was always in the home that children were likeliest to absorb the revolutionary teachings that, over the course of 2,000 years, have come to be so taken for granted as to almost to seem human nature. The Christian revolution was wrought above all at the knees of women. I think it's a very accurate assessment from, from Tom Holland as he looks at Christian history. By the way, he's a secular historian. He's not a Christian. But he's arguing that Christianity has been the most profound influence in Western history. On the world we have today, even those who are secular are operating on the basis of, of Christian assumptions. He says, how did this happen? It's not really the, you know, the, the movements of, of great you know, kings and bishops and empires. No, it's been women faithfully teaching their children generation after generation after generation. I think many of us here today could testify that it was through the, the work and the influence and the testimony of our moms that we were first introduced to Christianity. For many here, it was your mom who actually led you to Christ, who gave you the gospel for the very first time. For many here, it was mom who took you to church. For many here, it was mom who read the Bible to you. For many here, it was mom who ensured that you received a spiritual edu education. That's why on Mother's Day, we, we thank 
God for the influence of moms, not just in, in all of the physical and emotional support, but in the, the, the spiritual influence they have on, on our lives. That, that indeed is my story. God in his kindness put me into a home with a Christian mom and a Christian dad who together taught me God's word. But, you know, dad's working, mom's the one who's at home with the kids, and she's exerting a unique influence. It was my mom when I was about five years old when I went to her with questions about eternal life and heaven and hell and Jesus and why did he die and I'm a sinner. Uh, all of this sort of this pot boiling in my, in my soul. She was the one who pointed me to Christ at a young age and gave the gospel to me and leading me to repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. I am thankful, eternally thankful, for the influence of my mom, her faithfulness, her godliness, her consistency, her dedication to, to, to raise me and my four siblings to, to know and to follow Christ. And so, thank you to my mom. Thank you to God for giving me that mom. How many of you could say in some way your, your story echoes that in some way? Your, your, your mom was spiritually influential in your life. Maybe not the one particularly. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. But your mom, spiritually influential. Man, their hands all over this room. I say, mom, that, that had that influence in my life. Through Christian moms. So often God makes the call of the gospel crystal clear to our ears at a young age. The voice that, through which he speaks it really brings us to a key point. Hearing the good news of Jesus, whether that's through the influence of your mom or through a Sunday school teacher or maybe you were not raised in a Christian home but you heard the gospel later on in life in a church service, wherever it was that you heard the gospel and responded to the gospel, that is truly the most pivotal moment in your life. It's the most pivotal experience that any of us can undergo. How we respond to the gospel is the great fork in the road of life, right? Whether I'm going to go down the broad way that leads to destruction or the narrow way that leads to life. And quite often it is a mother standing there at that crossroads calling us to go down the narrow way that leads to life. This is really what our paragraph is about. It's not primarily about the influence of mothers. It is primarily about that pivotal, pivotal fork in the road. Of following Jesus, there, there's a contrast here between, between judgment and between salvation. If I were to summarize Luke 12, 49 to 59, it is actually quite difficult to do that. It feels like sort of three different things going on. But here's the, here's the note that rings throughout all of these different motifs. It is that note of urgency. The, the, the demand of uh, the urgency of making a decision to, to follow Christ this text draws a line in the sand. Jesus draws a line in the sand and demands that we come over to the side of truth and onto the side of eternal life and onto the side of following him. Now, as I noted at the outset, we're in the middle of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Luke really slows down the story here, beginning in really the end of Luke 9 all the way to about Luke 19. This is the heart of Luke's gospel. And as Jesus gets closer and closer to the cross, which is the crisis in the book, the climax of the book of Luke, the demands that he makes become more and more direct. As he gets closer to the cross, the seriousness of the moment grows. Hostility is growing. We, we've seen in previous chapters the Pharisees, the scribes, are becoming more and more hostile to Jesus, trying to figure out how they can kill him, how they can get rid of him. In the face of this growing hostility, in the face of this escalating tension, he is warning his followers here against a multitude of spiritual dangers. That's what Luke 12 has been all about. Look back in verse 1. Luke 12, verse 1, just a reminder of what's going on in the context. 
In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch they, they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So study, huge crowd, all these pilgrims. I mean, there's literally millions who would go to Jerusalem every year for Passover. Jesus, of course, is a really popular teacher. He is a healer. So huge crowds are just thronging to him. He's like a magnet attracting all of these people. But notice he's primarily speaking to the disciples in this moment of increasing danger, of increasing, uh, the, the danger of compromise is increasing, of like, man, it's beginning to cost more to follow Jesus, and the Pharisees are not on side anymore. Like, this is getting really not, 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 a, not a good thing. He's warning them against these spiritual dangers, and he warns them against hypocrisy. Then he warns them against fear and against shame. Then there's this section in the middle where he warns against materialism, against greed. He warns against anxiety. Last week we saw him warning them against being unprepared. He's saying, I'm going to leave. I'm coming back. Be ready for my return. Towards the end of the chapter now, he is warning them against the danger of compromise. There's this, this, all this word in, in the middle here about division, that following Jesus will bring division. Listen, none of us like to lose friendships or lose relationships. That's hard, right? And, and there's a, there is a, a, a temptation to say, maybe I'll sort of modify the gospel or, or, or just sort of downplay my commitment to Christ because it's costly. He's warning us against compromising in the face of the cost of following him. The cost of following Jesus, as we see in this paragraph, is, is great. It brings division. It's potentially dangerous. I mean, the fact that Jesus, in just a few weeks from this point, will be crucified shows you just the level of animosity that he's facing as he goes to the cross. It might make us feel safer to hedge our bets. Make us, might make us feel safer to kind of keep our heads down. But Jesus makes it clear we must commit to him. The call of the gospel goes out. We, 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 there's a line drawn. Which side are we on? This, this, this passage is saying we must follow him. Now, our, our outline this morning is very simple. There's two costs. There's two demands that he is making here in this text on us. Say, I, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. Here's the question you have to ask. Have, have I accepted and embraced these requirements? See, you see, being a Christian is more than just answering on a Gallup poll. I'm, I'm a Christian. I identify as a Christian. It's more than attending church from time to time. Being a Christian is more than praying a sinner's prayer and then going on with our lives as if nothing has happened. It's more than even being on the membership roles of a church. Being a Christian means you have a personal, vital relationship with Christ in which you follow him, right? Actively following him. So what is the first demand? What is the first cost that could maybe cause us to recoil and compromise in the face of it? It's this. Following Jesus requires, it demands division. All right, that seems like an odd thing, but that's what he's saying here beginning in verse 49 to 53. He's saying following me is going to bring division. You could also put it this way. It requires a devotion so strong that it will lead us to, 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 to be, just have an allegiance to Jesus Christ supremely. Jesus starts off here in verse 49. Let's walk through this. I'm come to send fire on the earth. What if I will if it already be kindled? Why does following Jesus require or bring result in division? It's because of the mission of Jesus. He, he says, here's my mission. My mission has come to bring fire. And then he says in verse 50, my mission is to undergo a, a baptism. Now, what does that mean? We'll talk about that in just a second. But Jesus says, my mission is to cast fire on the earth. When we read the image of fire, I think what should automatically come into our minds in the context of the Bible 
are the fires of judgment. That is a very common image in the Bible. Now, there are some people, some commentators, who try to douse the flames of this image. It's like, wow, these are the fires of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus has come to unleash the Holy Spirit. In the context of Luke, though, that's not what we would expect. Jump back to Luke chapter 3. Remember, we read Scripture, interpret Scripture, keep it in context, just not, not just the paragraph, but the book that we're in. Back in Luke chapter 3, we're introduced to the ministry of a guy named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is preaching. Uh, he says in verse 7, O generation of vipers who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bring forth fruits worthy of repentance in verse 8. In verse 9 he says, And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the what? The fire. Saying there's a reckoning coming. Those who do not repent will face the fires of God's judgment. And then the people ask him further down in the paragraph, okay, are you the Messiah? Like, you're doing some pretty amazing stuff, John. Now, verse 16, he says, I indeed baptize you with water. That's why he's called John the Baptist, not because he's a Baptist like we are, but because he baptized people as a symbol of their repentance. I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Wow, strong imagery. There's this division that occurs between humanity by the coming of Jesus. Some who will be gathered into the barn, and some will be burned with unquenchable fire, those who will be saved and those who will be lost. We've got to understand this. Following Jesus means accepting and embracing that mission, right? That, that is his mission is to, to judge on one hand and to save on the on the other. So back to Luke 12, there's this fire that is unleashed. Jesus came, he's explicitly saying, to unleash the fires of divine wrath. Now, he didn't do that in his first coming. He, he notes here, and what if, if it already be kindled? He's saying, I'm desiring that the fires be kindled, but not yet. This is something that's yet in the future, his second coming. At his second coming, these fires will be unleashed. We know this is not his sole mission, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says this, I have come to what? To seek and to save that which was lost. Back in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he says, I've come to preach the, the gospel to the, the, the poor and the unloosing to those who are in prison. So we're like, which mission is it? Is it saving or is it judging? And, the, and Jesus says the answer is both. He is an inherently divisive figure. He divides between those who receive him and are saved and those who reject him and face God's wrath. Now, what's shocking in verse 49 is a statement where he says, there's that word will, the word wish. Jesus says, I actually desire that these fires be unleashed. We sometimes get this idea that Jesus is like really, really reluctant to judge sin. It's kind of like, oh, man, I really don't want to do that, and I'm just really nice. And it's, ah. I, we have to understand this. The picture of God in the Bible is that God is holy. God is good. And because he is holy and good, he must judge sin. Right? The, when God judges sin, it's not something that's sort of like a reluctant thing that he does. It's just like, man, this is contrary to his nature. It is an expression of his holiness. Listen, you do not want a God who does not judge sin. You don't want a God who allows all the wrongs of the world to go just unpunished and undealt with. No, we, we want a God who is just, as long as that justice is not directed against my sin. That's where the rub is. But he goes on in verse 50, gives us another image to help us understand his mission, his divisive mission. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. 
and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Again, he's like, there's this baptism I must undergo that's yet future, which tells us he's not talking about the baptism he had at the beginning of his ministry. Back in, in Luke 3, he was baptized by John. That happened. He's looking forward to some future event. This is a metaphor for the cross. In, in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, this image comes up again, and it's very clear that Jesus is referring to suffering. He is going to be inundated with the fires of God's judgment. He is going to be immersed in suffering. We, talk, we use that phrase, a baptism of fire, to refer to immense, intense suffering. So Jesus is saying, on one hand, I've come to unleash judgment on the earth, but I've also come to undergo this immense suffering, this baptism in God's wrath. What's he talking about? He is talking about the cross. This is the journey to what? To Jerusalem. And what's going to happen at Jerusalem? He's going to die. He's going to be nailed to the cross. He's going to bear God's wrath against sin. Let's put it differently. Before the fires of judgment of verse 49 can be unleashed, Jesus has to undergo the baptism of verse 50. Now, this prospect, he says, how am I straightened to let me accomplish What does it mean to be straightened? What does that mean? The idea is, is, is to be pained, to be distressed, to be tormented. There's, there's an anguish that he feels. Of, I, I, I'm going to the cross, and that is why I'm come, and I'm ready to do this. This is not Jesus, you know, oh, I don't want to do what the Father has given me to do, and I'm fighting that, and I'm being dragged against my will. Understand, Jesus goes to the cross willingly. But in his humanity, there is a sense of dread as he goes to the cross. And ultimately, I think the dread that he feels, we we see it in the the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what what, what you will, Father. What's going on there is he is infinitely holy and he's about to become sin for us. He is about to bear the wrath of God for all of the vile sin of the world. And that's a terrifying thought for holiness to be immersed in sin. But here's the point. Jesus is dominated by the mission of the cross. He is gripped by that mission of the cross. He's fixated by it. This is the purpose for his coming to the earth. The great divider of humanity is the cross of Christ. On one side are those who come to Jesus in repentance, and on the other are those who walk away and reject it. It says, until it be accomplished, again, at the end of verse 50. That's an important word, until it come to completion. Jesus is not just sort of undergoing What's happening in his life is it's just sort of unfolding. It's not mere fate or accident. Rather, we're talking about a destiny that he fulfills of going to the cross. Hendrickson, in his commentary, writes this. Other children are passive in their birth. Jesus was active. He came in order to take upon himself the burden of God's wrath resulting from the sin of his people and to suffer the agonies of hell, the hell of Calvary, in their stead. That's his mission. That's a divisive mission. Following Jesus means embracing that mission of recognizing that's the Jesus that we follow. The Jesus who, on one hand, unleashes fire on those who do not believe, and on the other hand, experiences the judgment that you and I deserve. But he goes on to talk about this division. Notice there's no break between verse 50 and 51. He says, suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. Notice how the parallel, how the pattern continues, by the way. I am come to send fire, verse 49. I have come to be baptized, verse 50. I have come not to send peace, but to send division. Here's this, I am come, followed by an infinitive statement to tell us why he has come. So I've come to unleash fire. I've come to undergo a baptism. I've come to bring division. That is the, the result of, uh, of my coming. And for those who would follow Jesus, it means undergoing this division. So suppose you have come to bring peace on the earth. 
I tell you, nay, no, I have not come to bring peace, but to bring division. And in Matthew's account, I have not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Like many people today, the, the Jews of Jesus' day viewed him, viewed the Messiah, the, the position that, he, that he's in, as one who would be this great uniter, this one who would bring peace to the world, would, would establish the messianic kingdom, and everybody would get along in, in harmony. Now, they had good reason for thinking this. Isaiah 9, 6 said the Messiah will be the prince of peace. And Isaiah 11 pictures this, this kingdom that he will establish where the wolf and the lamb will lie down together and the child will play on the snake's nest and there will be no harm done. This beautiful picture of harmony between those, those things and those people and those creatures that would normally be at odds with each other. So you think I've come to bring peace? I've not come to bring peace, but division. How do we square that? The, the, the promise in the Old Testament, the Messiah would bring peace. And even the song at his birth, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace toward men, right? Isn't that the reason he came was to, to bring peace? Well, it depends what we mean by peace, right? Peace can mean a lot of different things. And to the Jews, to the, the followers of Jesus, they had this idea of peace of you're going to get rid of the Romans and there's just be all of this harmony on earth. He's like, that's not what I mean. I've come to bring peace between God and sinners. God and sinners will be reconciled. But the peace on earth is not going to happen just yet. The kingdom is not going to come in that form just yet. So the disciples are expecting all this to play out in short order for the nation to embrace Jesus, for the kingdom to be set up, and it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And he's like, no, 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 there's this baptism I've got to go through. I've got to go to the cross first, and it's going to be bloody and gory and, and very violent. It's going to be this interlude between my first coming and my second coming in which there is going to be this division in, uh, between humanity of those who follow me and those who reject me. In jarring contrast to this expectation, Jesus declares that he has not arrived to bring a shallow peace on earth. He's not here to paper over divisions, but to expose them. If you read volume two of Luke's history, this is ancient history here. We've got volume one, the Gospel of Luke. Volume two is called the Book of Acts. You will find this played out in the lives of the, It wasn't just in Jesus' lifetime, but the, the, the apostles, the 11 apostles, and then in Paul, they didn't have an easy go of it, right? They faced persecution, they faced hostility, division, conflict. All of those guys, except for John, who writes Revelation, are violently killed for following Christ. He's saying, you need to be ready. You need to be prepared to face division and rejection and hostility in this world because if they hate the master, they're going to also hate his followers, so in what sense does Jesus bring peace? He doesn't bring peace in that everybody's just going to get along and we're going to all hold hands and go to the UN and sing Kumbaya. It's going to be off. That's not, no, he doesn't bring it in that sense. In what sense does he bring peace? Well, there's a couple other times where peace comes up in Luke's gospel. Jump back to Luke 7. There's a sinful woman in Luke 7. Jesus is having dinner with a Pharisee. She comes up. She is weeping at his feet, washing his feet with her tears. The Pharisee's judging her. Jesus says to her in verse 48, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? Then look at verse 50, Luke 7, verse 50. And he saith to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in what? Peace. So in what sense is Jesus bringing peace? He's bringing peace by reconciling repentant sinners with a holy God. Not in just bringing harmony to the world without dealing with sin. The same thing plays out in Luke 8, verse 48, just over a chapter says to the, the woman who had the issue of blood, 
Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in what? Peace. So now what is peace? It's wholeness. It's restoration. It is healing. It is a right relationship with God. It doesn't mean she never had conflict in her life. It meant that she had a new relationship with God. Back to our text here in Luke chapter 12. So Jesus' his mission, his message divides those who follow him are going to experience this division. So he says here in, in Luke 12, 51, I've come to bring division, verse 52, from henceforth, that's an important word. So this point of me going to the cross is going to be an inherent dividing point in history and between humanity. There shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. I mean, he's, just not, he's not just talking about people under the same roof. The idea of the house, the idea of the home, the, the idea of the family. He says this division, this fault line is going to run through all of humanity and it's going to even go through families between those who follow Jesus and those who do not. Jesus is so monumental a figure. So his demands are so exacting and enormous, you cannot be neutral with regards to Jesus. This is not just a, well, we can just sort of agree to disagree kind of situation. But either Jesus is God or he's not. Either he makes claims that he is Lord of all or he's, he's not. The, the, the one thing Jesus cannot be is sort of moderately important, as C.S. Lewis reminded us. Humanity is split into two. That's why in Luke 9 and verse 50, Jesus says, the one who is not against us is for us. And then over in Luke 11, verse 23, he says, the one who is not with me is against me. There's just one or the other. There's no middle here. Divisions to be expected. You see, the coming of Jesus forces this all out into the open. It's not that Jesus creates divisions. Rather, Jesus reveals the divisions that are already there. Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 34. Jesus is come, brought to the temple to be dedicated. And an old man named Simeon comes wobbling over and, and blesses Jesus. And he says to Mary, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel to the end of the thoughts for many hearts will be revealed. In other words, Jesus will expose what's going on in people's hearts all along. You see, on the outside, we can all look very religious. On the outside, we can all look very nice and respectable. But when we're confronted with Jesus, we find out who believes in him, who does not. Who repents, who does not. And the real nature of their hearts comes out. Think about the Pharisees. They were really nice religious people. But Jesus brought out this volcano of hatred from their hearts. So as Jesus goes to the cross, the divisions between friend and foe, between believer and unbeliever, between true follower and apostate become clear. The same is true today. Uh, some people act as if apostasy is this new thing. There's this new movement called the exvangelicals. These people are like, man, I used to be an evangelical and now I'm not for all of these reasons. That's not a new thing. Just simply the demands of Christianity, when people realize, man, those are not cool with the, pop with the popular culture today, I'm done, I'm out, reveals where their heart was all along. So what is the, what is the demand this is making on us? The demand Jesus is making on us is that our loyalty to him supersedes all other human loyalties. That's what verses 51, 52, 53 are saying. I am to be more loyal to Jesus than I am to be to my own mother. That's what he is demanding of us if we are to be his followers. You're to be more loyal to Jesus than you are to your, even your own family. Man, that's really harsh. I thought Christianity was a family-friendly religion. Oh, God established the family, yes. 
He designed the home. It is meant to be a beautiful vehicle of his grace. But when there is a clash of loyalties between Jesus or any other human being, Jesus comes out on top. Look at Luke 14, verse 26. Jesus puts it in very, very stark terms. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That's a staggering claim to make. Now, Jesus is not saying in an absolute sense to hate. It's comparative. He says, your love for me is to be so great, it just completely eclipses all other loyalties you have. Of course you should love father and mother. Honor thy father and mother is a command in Scripture. Uh, you know, obey your parents. And, and love and loyalty in the family is a good and beautiful thing. Here's what Jesus is saying. Your loyalty and love for me is to be so much greater that nothing even can hold a candle to it. That, that, that's very sobering. Because how many of us, we can kind of do the Christian thing because it's easy to fit in, right? We're in the Bible Belt. Super easy to go to church on Mother's Day and, and all these things because it feels popular. Do you have a loyalty to the person of Jesus, or is your loyalty simply to kind of this idea, right? To like, oh, yeah, church, it's a nice idea. Just an aside, by the way, this division Jesus is talking about, we're not talking about petty personality conflicts that people dress up as persecution. You see that from time to time. People can't get along with their family. I'm being persecuted. Like, no, 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 you're just being a jerk. Don't do that. Um, when you do things that are dumb and contrary to God's word and people get upset with you, that's not persecution. We're talking about for Christ's sake when these things happen. Here's the point. Following Jesus is costly. It brings division. It divides right down the middle of humanity. It divides offices. It divides families. It divides nations. It divides states and counties and cities between those who follow Christ and those who do not. Now, which side of the divide are you on? Have you counted the cost? That passage in Luke 14 goes on to say, you should count the cost before you become a Christian because becoming a Christian is costly. To be frank, I think one of our problems today in, in American evangelicalism is we have, wanted, we have tried really, really hard to make Christianity not costly. We've said that becoming a Christian is just a, a panacea to solve all the problems of your life. You're having a rough marriage, become a Christian. You're struggling with your finances, become a Christian. You're sick, become a Christian. When the repair of those things is not promised, what is promised is forgiveness and eternal life and a relationship with Christ. But your life will still be hard as a Christian. In fact, it might even be harder than it was before. The gospel of Jesus confronts sinners in their sin. It declares our inability to save ourselves, and it calls us to cast ourselves on Jesus alone and follow him. Following Jesus is costly. It's costly because it demands division. It divides us from our sin. It separates us from all other loyalties. It subverts our worldview. It is radical. It's not just a culturally nice thing that we, we get along with. Now, I only have two points. So the second and final point. So finally, we come into point two, which, yeah, we're not, not leaving just yet. Still got time. Um, following Jesus not only demands division, but number two, it demands decision. Picking up in verse 54, down to the end of the chapter, he's now pressing this home to the crowds. He's been talking to the disciples. Uh, he started talking to the disciples um, back in verse 22. He's been speaking primarily to the 11. Now, the crowds are within earshot. But now he sort of turns to the crowds. He's saying what he said is to the disciples, following me, guys, is going to bring division. It's going to cost. It's going to be hard. 
But now verse 54, and he said to the people, to the crowds, to these, these thronging people who are pressing on one another. Remember chapter 12, verse 1, that's still going on. Huge crowds of people pressing in. He's now speaking to those who are not his followers, those who are not believers in him. He's calling them to make a decision. Now, I don't mean that in a shallow kind of, oh, will you decide for Jesus? But I mean, a, this is a, will you take up your cross and follow me? Will you repent and believe? He is appealing to their wills. He is appealing to their conscience. He says this, when you see a cloud, verse 54, rise out of the west, immediately you say, there's a storm, there comes a shower, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be heat, and it cometh to pass. You hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern times. He says you need to discern and you need to then make a decision based on that discernment. So he gives this illustration, hey, y'all know how to tell the weather. Even all the way back there in you know, the first century, people were trying to predict the weather. If you're living in Palestine, this is very geographically accurate. You've got to the west, the Mediterranean Sea. So if you thought, you know, winds blowing in from the west and clouds out in the west, out where the moisture is, yeah, mm, it's going to rain. That's where the rain always comes from. That Now, out here, rain comes from, like, every different direction. And sometimes it comes from the Gulf, and sometimes it comes from Mississippi. But in Palestine, it always comes from the west. So you see clouds in the west are like, mm, it's going to rain, and guess what? It does. That's westerly winds bring it in. Likewise, if you're in Palestine, particularly in Judea, this tells us he's getting closer to Jerusalem, you get a wind blowing up from the south. Think of your map. There's just a big desert down there, the Negev Desert. It's a wasteland. It's hot. Egypt's down there. You see a wind coming in from the south off the desert, you know, it's going to get really hot. Uh, if, you, if you've ever been, spent time in Pensacola, when you get a northerly wind, you can smell the paper mills up in Cantonment, and you're like, mm, it's going to get cold. Well, same way, when you get these winds from the south, you know it's going to be hot, and it happens. Like, hey, guys, you know how to tell the weather. Good job, right? Uh, so they've got, they're able to, 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 with some degree of accuracy, tell you whether it's going to rain or whether it's going to get hot based on clouds to the west, wind from the south. Doing so does not require a full understanding of meteorological theory or physics to, to make a prediction like that. Now, verse 56 now, he makes the application. You know how to discern the weather, but you don't know how to discern the times. Well, what does he mean by that? He says, I can tell what time it is. Like, okay. He's not talking about telling the time on a clock or on a calendar, but discerning the moment, the word here, kairos, not so much the uh, sequence of times, but the season here's what he's saying. You, you guys can tell the weather. You can figure out what it's going to do tomorrow, but you can't look at the evidence staring you in the face and realize I'm the Messiah and the kingdom is being inaugurated. He's saying you, you, you've read all the prophets. He's speaking to, to, to Jewish people who knew the prophets. You've read the prophecies, and here I am performing miracles and preaching messages. I am the fulfillment of all the prophets, and you can't discern that. You can't discern that I am the Messiah and you should follow me. That's the sense of what he is saying. You know how to tell the weather? Why can you not recognize the era of fulfillment has come? Why won't you recognize the presence of the kingdom? My identity is the Messiah. He's saying, here's what he's saying. It is as obvious as a thunderstorm coming from the west. The evidence is unmistakable. The problem is not lack of evidence. It is lack of willingness. It is an unwillingness to bow the knee to Jesus. Simply a new era has dawned in Jesus but their unbelief has blinded them to the clouds of mercy. Their unbelief has numbed them to the winds of wrath that are coming in Jesus. They do not want to see it. That's what he's saying. Back just a chapter before, they had demanded further signs from him. Back in, ch in chapter 
uh, chapter 11. And they'd accused him of, uh, of casting out demons by Satan. Others, Luke 11, verse 16, were tempting him, demanding a sign from heaven. And he's like, guys, I'm giving you all the evidence you need. I'm raising the dead. I'm healing the, those who cannot speak. I'm casting out demons. The kingdom of God has come in me. It should take the same level as being able to say, hmm, it's going to rain, as it should be able to say, this is the Messiah. That's why he calls them hypocrites, right? Back here in, in, in Luke chapter 12, he says, you're, you're hypocrites, you're frauds. You're pretending that you don't know that the era of fulfillment has come when it has come. Beloved, we have all the evidence that we need. So he says, I need more proof. You need to show, prove to me that God exists and that Jesus was the Messiah. Hey, we are living in an exhibit of the glory of God called creation. This world did not create itself. It did not come from nothing. You have the witness of conscience. I've met atheists who are morally outraged at the behavior from their perspective of God. And my question is, where did you get this idea of right or wrong from? It's written on your heart. It's written on your conscience. People demanding more evidence from Jesus. People today still demand evidence to say, you have to prove it to me when we have the evidence, the testimony of God's word saying, here are the words of Jesus. Here are the claims of Jesus. It's staring you in the face. You can, you can tell the weather. You can't tell the times. By the way, discerning the times. I'm going, we need to discern the times. And someone will have like discerning the times of the end of the age.com. And there's this weird little blog where they're trying to interpret news stories and whatnot. Discerning the times is not about like trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. What Jesus means here of saying discerning the times is recognizing that this is the day of salvation and that Jesus is the Messiah. Discerning the times means follow Christ. It's not about identifying the Antichrist. It is about following the genuine Christ. It means recognizing Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises and trusting in him alone as the Savior of the world. So he's saying, hey, guys, audience, you guys are really shrewd when it comes to the weather, but you're being deliberately obtuse when it comes to spiritual matters. Hey, there's many people who are the same today. Many people who are, man, very astute when it comes to the matters of the world. They're, they're great at their finances. Man, they can tell you all about the, the, the box score from the, the Braves game or you know, all the stats about football. By the way, nothing wrong with that. Those are great things to enjoy. But if you know all these things about the football game and the stock market and the political climate of Washington, D.C., and all the latest happenings on your favorite TV drama, but you don't know about the condition of your soul, you're a hypocrite. Your priorities are out of whack. It's so easy to give tremendous thought to the needs of our world, but no thought to the needs of our soul. How is it between you and God? If he were to say this night, thy soul shall be required of thee, what would your standing before him be? What would your confidence be in? What would your hope be in? Would you be acquitted on the day of judgment or would you be condemned? Jesus is saying, discern the condition of your soul. Discern the times that Messiah is here and the offer is being made. By the way, that time will not last forever. It won't. The day does come when life comes to an end and all opportunity to get right with God ends with it. Serious thought. That brings us into the last little vignette here in verse 57. Yea, why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? In other words, why, why don't you just make up your own mind? You're being fed all this stuff from the Pharisees and you're sort of burying your head in the sand. The idea of judge is, is make a decision, a determination of yourselves on your, on your own. Make, make up your mind what is right. I think this is Jesus' way of echoing the words of Joshua 
choose you this day who you will serve, or of Elijah. How long are you going to limp between two opinions? Get off the fence, make a decision. All these people following, and they're all fascinated by Jesus. They think he's awesome. They're like, man, Jesus is great. We love listening to his teaching. Parables, so cool how he uses those stories. Pharisees are boring. Jesus is interesting. Man, the miracles are great. He's like, hey, that's not enough. Will you put your trust in me? There's an urgency. I'm going to the cross. I'm not going to be here long. Divine judgment is going to fall. So now in verse 58 and 59, he gives us an illustration of the urgency to reconcile to God. When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou thou mayest be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last mite. Jesus uses the same teaching in a different context in Matthew 5, of course, where the, the lesson is quite simple. Reconcile your relationships with other people, right? If you don't, it can escalate very, very quickly. But here I think the sense is a little bit different. I think the point here is an illustration of saying you need to reconcile with God. There's an urgency to to reconcile with God. This is a parable, I think, to illustrate what he's been saying. There's this division, those who follow me, those who don't. And there needs to be an urgency now before the judgment falls. So notice we begin with this idea of fire, we end with this idea of prison. Both metaphors for eternal condemnation. This is a call to make an urgent decision to be reconciled to God. Now, the backdrop here. The ancient world, they had debtor's prisons. In fact, they weren't all that uncommon even in in more recent history in the 17 and 1800s. And here's the idea. You owe your creditor a bunch of money, and you don't pay up. And so what do they do? They come and take you. They throw you in prison to be like, hey, until you pay, you're staying in prison, which kind of to me just seems absurd to be like, so how do you expect someone in prison to... I think it was probably a scare tactic to get their families to cough up money to get them out of prison where the treatment was horrible. So this is the illustration. Jesus is not condoning that. That's just the reality. It's an illustration they would have been familiar with. So he says, okay, you're on your way to the magistrate. You're on the way to the judge with this person who's, who's basically grabbing you and being like, hey, we're going to the judge. We're going to get a ruling to get you put in prison because you owe me all this money. He says, give diligence that you may be delivered from him. Try to come up with a way that you can be reconciled to this guy because if this gets into the courtroom, it's going to spiral out of control. Where right now you owe money to him. He says, okay, give diligence you may be delivered. Then he says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get dragged. The word hail there is dragged by force. You're going to get dragged to the judge in handcuffs. He's going to give you to the bailiff. The bailiff will throw you into prison. Is that really what you want? This is give diligence, give pains is the, is the sense of the, uh, of the phrase there. Give pains, do everything you can to make things right before you get to that point. In verse 59, I tell you, you will not ever depart. You're never going to get out of the prison until you've paid everything. What a powerful illustration of the need for us to reconcile with God. The lesson here is simple. Reconcile to God Now, follow Jesus now, while you have the opportunity, while the kairos, while the time is still present. Now, here's the reality. We owe an infinite debt to God, not one that we will ever be able to pay back. Sin is against an infinite God, therefore the penalty is infinite. So there's no sense in which even an eternity in hell can begin to pay back what we owe to God. Every one of us, I'm not on my way to the judge. Yes, every single one of us, every day, takes us one step closer to the judge. We're all heading to the courtroom of heaven. One day our life will come to an end, and there we will be standing before God. 
And if we fail to reconcile with God while we're on the way, the end result will be eternal imprisonment in hell. Therefore, we should seek to be right with God now. Now, you will only reconcile to God if you realize that you're not right with him. Right? I mean, you be reconciled to this person. Like, well, I'm not at odds with them. A lot of people think that they're cool with God, that God's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty nice person. God likes me. This is awesome. Well, the Bible teaches really the opposite, that the natural man is hostile to the things of God. We have enmity towards God, that we, we cannot submit ourselves to his law, according to Romans 8. We are at war with him. And we will only seek his mercy when we see our sin, when we see that we have violated his law, that we deserve his wrath, that we have gone our own way. So when we settle out of court, as it were, with God, a lot of times what would happen if you settle out of court with a, with a creditor, they'd be like, all right, what we'll do, we'll sort of cut the, the debt in half, you come up with a payment plan, we're good. This is the beautiful thing of the gospel. When we settle out of court with God, when we reconcile with God now, he doesn't set up a payment plan where, hey, you give me 10 bucks a month for the next 20 years to pay the debt off. No, he doesn't do that. He absorbs the debt in himself. He takes the punishment and puts it on Jesus. So there's no more debt for us to pay. That's what forgiveness is, the erasing of the debt, not by sweeping it under the rug, but by nailing it to the cross. And so God is just and the justifier. The debt is fully paid through the finished work of Jesus. Praise God for that. Here's your choice. I try to pay the debt myself. Well, verse 59 says you will never leave prison until the last penny is paid. Sin can't be paid for by a mere mortal. So there's option A, I try and pay it myself. Or option B, I accept the work of God in Jesus Christ, taking my place on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection for me. The point is a simple one. Don't delay. That's what Jesus is saying when you're going. Quickly, give pains to make this happen. Do whatever it takes to be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. See, don't be content with simply, I'm a, I'm a church. That's good. I'm good to go with God. No, are you, is it well with your soul? Are you right with God? Do you have confidence that when you stand before him, he will say, welcome into my heaven? Do you have confidence in that this morning? Is there there a tinge of doubt? Is there a serious question mark? Is there the gnawing of a conscience that's like, I do not know if that can be, if that will be? Do not delay. This is our message as the church, is to say to the world around us, be reconciled to God. I love how Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, he says, For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But the verse right before that, Now then, we, Christians, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. If you're under the sound of my voice today, God is saying to you through this message, Be reconciled to God. Turn to him. And that's the message, beloved, we need to take to the world, that you need to take to your neighbor, that you need to take to your coworkers, that you need to take to your family. A message of reconciliation, that's also a message of division. Divides those who respond to it from those who reject it. But those who receive it, it brings peace with God. Here's what I'm saying this morning. Following Jesus is costly. Brings that division between the two groups. 
but it also requires decision. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it is a, there is a very real decision. It's not just a little decision, oh, will you make a, pray a little prayer. No, it is a repentance. It is a turning away from the old life. It is a new birth. It is a new beginning. It is a resurrection. Now, how does it happen? It happens by a working of God in your soul that brings you to a place of repenting and believing in Jesus. It's not a work that you do to yourself. None of us can give birth to ourselves, right? None of us can raise the dead. None of us can give life to ourselves. It's throwing ourselves on the mercy of Jesus and Jesus alone. You can come in today at war with God and walk out today at peace with God if you will throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. Father, help us to embrace the cost. We're Christians.